Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1288, air date August 5th, 2023. Dr. Shiva, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to start off with the presidential campaign. Um, and, you know, my, my reluctance about all of this because of the, the you're not, you were not born in the United States. You're not a naturalized citizen. Um, and I'm so, a naturalized citizen. Oh, you are a, I'm a naturalized sorry. citizen. Yes, yeah. you're not, you, but you weren't born in the United States. And that means that according to the laws that we have in this country, there's certain parameters on who can and cannot run for president. And if you were not born in the United States, now that could be debated on whether or not that should be the case. But it is the case at this point, and you cannot run for president, or you cannot be president uh, if you were not born in the country, and yet you're running for president. And so I want to ask you about that and what you're doing with the campaign donations then that, are, that you're collecting on this campaign that you, I mean, ultimately, if you were to win, you couldn't actually take office. Yeah, let's talk about that, Kim. So first of all, that's false. Um, so let's go through that. First of all, um, it's a very important discussion that needs to be had. You know, most of everything I've done uh, has always been to educate people, and we'll talk more about that. But Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5 of the Articles, right, which was done in 1787, um, there's a couple of things people need to understand in history class. First of all, the Constitution is a living document. Amendments change previous things. So if you follow Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5, which is a qualifications of president, by the way, it refers to he. Okay, according to if you follow that by the letter of the law, a woman cannot be president. But we know the 19th Amendment was passed. But Article 2, Section 1, um, Clause 5 talks about the qualifications of president. You have to be 35 years old, right? You have to be natural born, which the founders, interestingly enough, never defined. And then the next thing it talks about is you have to be a resident in the United States at a certain time. Interesting right. enough, the Maryland legislature um, made Marquis de Lafayette, who was never born in the United States, and all of his heirs, a natural-born citizen. And you can go do your research on that. Now, you go to the fact that the Bill of Rights came. So the First Amendment, you know, all those important rights came. And then we had the 14th Amendment, which was probably one of the most fundamental amendments that was passed, as important, you could argue, as the Bill of Rights, which is Equal Protection Clause. So when you go to the Equal Protection Clause, um, it clearly says a naturalized citizen cannot be distinguished from a natural born citizen. You cannot have two levels of citizenry. So since that passing over 100 years ago, uh, there have been many, many court rulings where people brought up the fact how a naturalized citizen was being discriminated as a natural born. And the coach, courts have overwhelmingly consistently said that you cannot do this. It's a violation of the 14th Amendment. Now, what's occurred is that if you look at the history of this law, um, the FEC in 2011, a guy called Hassan, uh, wanted to get on the ballot in New Hampshire. Now, this looks like he was trying to do a money-making venture uh, when you actually look at it, not about really running for office. So he wanted to get presidential matching funds. The New Hampshire Secretary of State said, I, I can't put you on the ballot because you're not natural born. And again, the Secretaries of State need to be educated. Um, but, he, but the FEC, which is the governing body, really the agency on this, interesting enough, ruled after that, that a, you can, a naturalized citizens can run for president, in fact, can collect donations. Okay, but they left out the uh, presidential matching funds. So 
in, in, in court rulings, there's a very, very important principle called agency deference. Huge body of law that have been done on that. And agency deference says that a court, even a Supreme Court justice, must defer to the agency to being the subject matter expertise, the SME on it. So FEC is their subject matter expertise. So by the law, A, I can run, and I, B, I can collect donations. Now, we have filed a what's called a declaratory relief with Merrick Garland. We've sued Merrick Garland and Gary Thompson on two counts. First of all, is that by the law, not only can I run, but also be president. And this is an educational process that needs to be taking place. And so the declaratory relief, which we filed in DC about, uh, about a month ago, it tells the courts to order, no different than Brown versus Board of Education, that we want Merrick Garland to order, or the courts to order Merrick Garland to inform all the states, right? Because we live in a, a republic, each state can decide ultimately the requirements for ballot access. In Massachusetts, for example, you have to collect 10,000 signatures. In Vermont, you have to collect 1,000 signatures. And when you collect those signatures, and they may have other requirements, right? You may have to have electors and you may have to have X number of meetings. So we want Merrick Garland or the, 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 uh, the courts to uh, order Merrick Garland to tell all the Secretary of States when our volunteers, and we have about a couple hundred thousand already all over the, uh, the United States, when they collect signatures and they submit, preemptively, if they do that, that's a violation of the Constitution. So that's what we've done. So this would, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to push back on this idea. If, if, if it is the case that a naturalized citizen and not natural born could actually hold office. Now, I agree you could run for office, you could collect donations, but that's different than actually then being allowed to take office once you win, if you were to win. Um, and there would be a lot of pushback on this because we all live through the birther gate you know, the Obama birth certificate saga, where it was, where was he really born? Yeah. Oh, he was born in Kenya. And so he could not be president. I mean, there was millions upon millions of people who believed that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and therefore could not actually be eligible to hold office. So what would you say to all of the people who fought that, well, even Donald think, Trump himself, for all those years? Yeah, look, first of all, um, a lot of these people probably are smoking weed and were, didn't really study the Constitution. Um, just because someone on the right or the left says that the sun rises on the east doesn't mean they're wrong. Okay, so let's take the sort of general philosophical perspective. First of all, I don't, I haven't investigated, I haven't looked at Obama's birth certificate or not, so I haven't had the chance to do that investigation. But I can tell you that Obama, if he was indeed born somewhere else, uh, he should have taken this head on because the 14th Amendment makes it absolutely unconstitutional to deny me the right to be president. Now, Paul Clark is one of the leading legal scholars in the country on this, and Paul has written one, a wonderful legal review on this. And the three points that we've argued in our court suit is, first of all, the First Amendment says any political speech is the most protected form of speech. So my running for office, I should be able to run. Number two, the 14th Amendment um, you know, was really established for the states, but Bowling versus Green extended that back at the federal level to the Fifth Amendment, which is due process. So the law is there. And then another very important principle is called let the political process decide. Um, and this is something even the legal scholars who thought that this was wrong and said, yeah, let the political process decide. But fundamentally, relative to Obama, I, I think he claimed he was a constitutional lawyer. 
Um, so if he was in fact born somewhere else, he should have argued it. So yes, I will be doing some innovation here, breaking ground as I've always had to do throughout my entire life on everything I've had to do to struggle to get what I've gotten. But this is in 10, 15 years from now, um, when, you know, look, if uh, Merrick Garland doesn't do it, um, it'll go to the appeals court and we'll win in the Supreme Court. It's black and white on this issue. The, the preponderance of case law clearly saying that a naturalized citizen and a natural born citizen cannot be discriminated has been over and over and over and adjudic adjudicated in the courts. Yeah. I mean, I think that I mean, education process, ma'am. Well, it's going to be so some people who say, well, we don't want that guy coming in from out in another country, an Arab or whatever. They'll say some something discriminatory. We don't want Saddam Hussein's brother being the president of the United States. Now, you have to understand when this was all created, it was done at a time when the United States was a fledgling nation. Uh, they didn't want a prince coming in and overtaking the government. But you could right. argue the natural born citizens like Joe Biden, you know, there's a lot of so-called people who claim that they're natural born and are patriots have in fact sold out this country to foreign born nations. So uh, we live in a very, very different world. You could also argue philosophically that naturalized citizens perhaps may be even more patriotic to this country than people sit on their rumpus and, and have forgotten what it means, what the first and second amendments really mean. But well, regardless of- I mean, I see both sides of that for sure. I mean, my mother is a, a refugee from Vietnam and so, I grew up with a bunch of Vietnamese people who were, uh, some of them had become American citizens, some of them have not. And I will say that there's an argument, I, I, I do, I understand there's an argument on both sides of that on who's more of a citizen. And I, I agree that we probably should not be living in a country that's, that gives second class citizenship to naturalized citizens versus natural born citizens. But I would say that even though naturalized citizens often work hard, love this country because they came here under dire circumstances, they also still have an affinity for home. I think everybody has an affinity for home. Even I do. You know, I don't want to move back to Idaho, but I love Idaho. It's my home state. It's where I grew up. You know, I think mm. people naturally love home, where they grew up, where their roots are. And so there is just that natural affinity. And so what you, the, I think the fear in why there is this idea that it's only natural born citizens who could be president of the United States is because you don't want a president who is going to have that, that nostalgia and love and, you know, and affinity for a foreign country that very well could end up being hostile. It would be a conflict of interest. And I could, I could understand yeah. that. I mean, we see the conflicts of interest with like Joe Biden and Burisma and Hunter Biden. And, and it's why is that? You know, why is, why does that matter? Well, it or, matters or a lot because, of, yeah, go ahead. Or a lot of people from, from Ireland, you know, there's people from Ireland and Boston of a greater love for Ireland in some ways than here. It goes across the board. And so you Israel, you've got a lot of people who love Israel, yeah, well, probably more so than well, the United not, States. Well, not only that, in the case of Israel, you're actually allowed to have dual citizenship, which I'm right. opposed to. And you're allowed to, an American citizen can fight in the Israeli army. And that's right. even more dangerous. Um, I think the real issue I think you're bringing up, Kim, is a fascinating question I've thought about it is, what does it mean to be a citizen? And to me, it's about service. You know, what does it mean to, have you done stuff for this country? You know, you look at your long history. What have you done for the United States? What have you actually done? So you could be President Joe Biden and you scammed the United States and you did all these deals to do it for selfishness. Does that make you a citizen? You know, there's some philosophical issues. Right. I believe that this issue of the 14th Amendment, we're going to win on that. And it's going to fundamentally uh, give a, a whole nother pool of very, very extraordinary people who should run for president, like myself yeah. and 
you well, know, I mean, your, it, your mom and everyone else. But the issue well, comes down to what is citizenship? You know, what does right, it mean to be a right. citizen anymore? And that's so, a really good question because we do have a big battle in this country about immigrants coming in, illegal immigrants coming in, mm -hmm. working here. And then there's this, well, they shouldn't be citizens. And I've, I've, I've often said the same thing. If you are contributing to this country, if you are building healthy uh, neighborhoods, businesses, you're working hard, you should have the right to become a citizen of the country if you are working and you intend to stay here, you intend to continue building here. You're not planning on building here and then taking your resources and money and going somewhere else and building another country with it. I, I agree with that. I, I think we, we do need to redefine what makes a person a citizen in this country. I think it would be a big, large debate. That's a huge thing to tackle is whether or not somebody who's just born to an American citizen on foreign soil automatically gets American citizen citizenship, should that be the case, or somebody who just comes here and is born here and then leaves. I know a lot of people who come here, they're yeah. born here, their parents bring them here. They're wealthy people from other countries. They come to America just to birth their babies here, only to then take yeah. them back to Turkey or Russia or China and, or Europe and raise them. Uh, and, and so we yeah, should have a I've conversation heard. about what is a citizen and what and redefining, you know, should we have this sort of birthright citizenship or should we do it based on other things? And I think it should be based on contribution to the country. Are you contributing? Are you yeah. a healthy person that's contributing? Yeah, it, yeah, I think it really comes down as to me, the slogan I have is service is citizenship. So if you look at someone flies here, comes to New York, has their kid and then goes back and never comes back to the United States, they can be, you know, according, you know, they can be a president, right? Right. And then right. someone comes here you know, uh, generates, uh, creates email and generates value for a multi-trillion dollar economy is, uh, gets NIH and NSF grants and contributes and writes papers and has been here 40 years. Uh, in, in the absolute constitutional position of the 14th amendment says you cannot have second class citizens. So that's the point on my becoming president. But there is a deeper issue of, there's people sitting in this country who take advantage of this country too, who are natural born citizens, quote unquote, natural born again, which was never defined by the founders. Maybe we need to ratchet up what it means to be a citizen. You know, yeah. do you serve after high school? Do you participate in the army? Do you do some type of service project for two to three years? Um, what are you contributing on an ongoing basis to advance the United States economy? Um, and obviously I do not think people should be able to have dual citizenship and right. be able to maintain U.S. citizenship. So there's a lot of very profound things I think this, our campaign is gonna bring up. And obviously the first reaction, well, no, you can't be president according to that. Well, it's not true. So we can have the legal argument on that, but there's this broader argument, which I hope, or this discourse that we actually have, what does it mean to be an American and to really yeah. love this country? So- Right. Well, you're not alone in what, the, you know, you're not alone in the, in the controversy of whether or not somebody who is not born in the United States could be president. I mean, we do have, like, for example, Ted Cruz. Uh, there's questions on Ted because John he McCain. was born in Canada. John McCain, who was born in the uh, Panama. Yeah. He was born on a military base, wasn't he, in Panama? He was born on a um, military base, but that's that's where it gets interesting, right? Right, they, because they claim that that was American soil, essentially, that he was still born right. in American soil because he's born on an American base, but in a foreign country. And so he right. was allowed so to run for this, president. Yeah, there's been this huge argument, if you go back to British common law, that goes all back just solely, which means joined on soil and just sanguine, which means your bloodlines. Right. Um, but that's why the 14th Amendment is so powerful because it basically said, you know what? A naturalized citizen, natural born citizen are absolutely equal. We cannot have two tiers of citizens. 
So just on that basis, the Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5 is abrogated by that. And that's a very, very, not only is it a powerful argument, but it's, it's sort of de facto already decided. It's just no yeah. one has asserted it, Kim. So in many yeah. ways, I'm asserting it, and um, that's what I'm doing. So it's going to be fascinating what occurs at the every state level, because as we start handing in the signatures, since we already have the lawsuit filed, we may have to do some uh, PIs, preliminary injunctions, when that occurs. And that's going to bring up some fascinating issues. It's going to be a great learning experience, at minimum, yeah. including well, the Secretary of State. And maybe you can get some uh, defining rulings on that. The Supreme Court has never weighed in. Um, on that particular issue, and like you said, there's exactly. a lot of different. There's a lot of case, you know, case law that that uh, sort of that backs up the case, the strength of the case, if it ultimately got to that point. But I do think that it needs to have uh, more meat. But I, I don't think you'll be the last on this. I mean, I, as we just mentioned with John McCain, Ted Cruz, there was also Barry Goldwater, who was born in Arizona when it was a exactly. territory and not actually right. a state, and so. Uh, and, and there's questions of that. What happens if we make an area a state, but it, the, is everybody who were born there, are they no longer eligible to become president of the United States until they start having children? And it, it takes a couple of generations before someone from that territory that is now a state could become president. So there's a lot of questions there um, and absolutely wish the best of luck to you on that. So let's let's move on and talk about email, the scandal about about email. For some reason, there's this controversy on whether or not you really created it. Uh, there was somebody else who was cited. Is his name Ted? Am I getting that right? Uh, that they claimed was the guy yeah. who actually created yeah, email. So, yeah. So let's talk about that. The invention of email is a, probably one of the most important things that gets back to what it means to be an American. Okay, what this country is about. If you look at the facts, you know, here, uh, let's just sort of wind back and review the facts. I came here when I was seven years old, and. Um, and uh, I went back to India for a brief moment, three months. My grandmother was passing away in a small village in India, right? India has a caste system, as, as I've talked about, Kim, if you've heard some of the discussions I've done. And in that caste system, we were supposed to be the lowest of the low. You won't find a lot of Indians like me here. Most of the Indians are the Brahmins. So when I went back to India that brief period, I realized, I think I was 12, wow, America has so much to offer. I was back in our village where my grandmother had no shoes, living in a hut. And I realized I better do something with my life or I would be a parasite. This is very deep, deep feeling that came upon me. So when I came back, I pretty much excelled at sports, excelled in athletics, you know, uh, but, but, uh, but also in mathematics. I'd finished up my mathematics course, calculus, which was only given to high school, the seniors at the ninth grade. My high school had no more math courses to give me. Now, there's a, a lot of very powerful women were involved in my life. My mom was an extraordinary woman. A very important teacher she argued with the state school board in new jersey to allow this kid um first of all what happened was i don't know if, how how what your age is what sort of generation you're in but if you go back to 1970 a computer would fill up our entire building here you know they're called mainframe right. computers um and so there was a professor uh, who moved to israel henry mullish and and i visited him about uh, or went to his memorial about a couple of years ago, but Henry Mullish had this vision at NYU as a mathematician that one day we would need software engineers. This is a 1977, which is not, the concept didn't even exist. So 40 students were selected in a competitive process to go to NYU. And I was one of the fortunate students who got accepted to that program. The only Indian kid, 
the only kid from New Jersey, and I was far younger than what the acceptance uh, schedule was. You had to be 16, and I was 14. So I also had to fight that at a young age. So anyway, I got in, finished number one in that class, learned computer science, and this wonderful woman teacher, Stella Alexi, actually said, Shiva's going to get bored here, and I had gotten the opportunity to get a job in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. And I was given the initial task. I was hired as a research fellow, full-time employee by a 14-year-old kid. And the task was, because of my interest in medicine, to look at why babies were dying in their sleep. This was a medical school. They had wonderful data on baby sleep patterns. And I developed some of the what you call the first AI algorithms to predict the onset of the baby dying in their sleep. In fact, I went on to publish a paper before I came to MIT on this. But because my programming skills were so good, Dr. Michelson, still there he gave me another opportunity if you go back to that period women could only do three or four jobs or not could but that's where they were restricted to teacher nurse secretary or housewife so if you went into any institution like this medical college women were typically sitting at something called a desktop they had something called a typewriter you may have used this i used it to write my papers growing up and on their desktop they had something called an inbox an outbox big file folders. They would write a thing called a memo with a uh, to, from, subject, very, very structured with a carbon paper. You'd have to put a paper and you have to put a CC, etc. You had these pneumatic tubes in these uh, rooms where you would write a memo. The doctor would come typically dictate to the secretary. She'd write a memo, draft would occur. The reason I'm sharing with you all, this was a very complex system. It was the inter-office paper-based mail system. Now, in those old computers, you could do simple text messaging. That's not what I'm talking about. I was asked to convert this entire system, inbox, outbox, folders, 100 different features. People can go to inventorofemail.com and they can see that. As a 14-year-old, um, and I took on this challenge. I wrote 50,000 lines of code with eight kilobytes of memory. No one had ever done this before, translating every feature. Now you have to understand, the Doctors in that hospital would come to me and say, why are you inventing this system? No one's going to use it. I really just love going to my secretary and using this inbox outbox folders. The secretaries were fascinated. They became my customers. I had great respect for them. And we made up a list of every feature and they said, Shiva, we're not going to move from this paper-based system to this until all of those features exist. Every single thing you see in every email system today. And that's what I did, Kim. And I named that system email. I came up with that term a system never used before in the English language. Won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards, which was considered the baby nobles. It was written up in the local newspapers. When I came to MIT, the president of MIT, who was then the science advisor to Ronald Reagan, Paul Gray, I, I was elected student body president. He had a big event at his home. This is December of 1981. And by the way, when I came to MIT, they'd said, here's a guy who invented the first email system on the front page. So Dr. Gray said, you know, it's truly unfortunate that the Supreme Court is not recognizing software patents. It was a problem, again, legislators not understanding innovation. But in 1980, what had occurred was that the um, Copyright Office had said you could use copyright law to protect software inventions. And that was called the 1980 Computers Software Act. So Dr. Gray said, you know, Shiva, you should protect your invention. Now, I, ha I had no lawyers. My parents weren't PR people. I wrote away. There was no PDFs. You had to write for these forms. And it was not just simply putting a C with a circle around it, which, with, which a lot of people 
have denigrated that to. You had to submit all your code. It went back and forth. And on August 30th, 1980, a 17-year-old kid gets the first United States copyright, recognizing me as the inventor of email. Sorry. Wrote the code, named it email, and have all of it, right? Now, the problem is I didn't do any PR. 40, 33 years later, my dear mom is dying of pulmonary fibrosis and a beautiful suitcase, Kim, she has all of this organized. The code, the computer code, Doug Ameth, the only journalist, the only honest journalist who a friend of mine at Emerson, a professor there said, Shiva, you invented email. How come you haven't spoken about this? Well, Doug Ameth, the senior editor, came by, went through all of it, and he wrote a very important article, front page on Time's online website called Dr. Shiva Idre, the man who invented email. Smithsonian contacted me and they said, oh my God, you have this treasure trove of materials. We would like it. The Computer History Museum contacted me. And it was only on November, uh, so it was on February 16th, 2012, a beautiful ceremony is held in Washington. The Smithsonian received all, all these and a young Washington Post reporter writes an article called Shiva Ayadre honored as the inventor of email. And that's when the proverbial shit hits the fan. And the proverbial shit hits the fan and you have to remember, this is, I'm now 40 years old. I've been at MIT, taught at MIT, won every major award at MIT, Fulbright Scholarship, right? On the front page of MIT, inventing e-EchoMail, another company I did for automatically analyzing email, which we built into a quarter of a billion dollar company, which started from me getting the White House as my first customer, my second life with email. I was called Dr. Email. No one else has a problem with this, but the day it went into the Smithsonian, a racist scumbag, historian by the name of uh, uh, Thomas Haig, who thinks he is the one who's gonna own the history of email, calls me a fraud, a liar. Gizmodo, you may remember them from Gawker Media, uh, writes an article saying, this asshole, this dick, this and another blog says this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged. Unbelievable, this is not in 1952, Jack, Jackie Robinson, this is in 2012, and I never wanted any of this fame. Now I'm teaching a class at MIT for free, not like Elizabeth Warren for $400,000. While I'm running Cytosolve, another one of my inventions, thousands of calls come into MIT saying, how dare this guy say he invented email? The ARPANET guys did it. Well, the military, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's the always military the military, right? Complex. Yeah. Exactly, and you yeah. nailed it. And this is the issue. You gotta understand, I was a model minority, which MIT loves, the liberal elites love, to promote the model minority when you are, when they think you are part of their establishment. But here's a problem, Kim, it was a wonderful journey I went through personally, because if you look at my journey from hitting MIT when I came there in 17, and all this occurred, I was there 33 years in all sorts of manifestations, lecturer, teacher, grad student, I always was doing something else. I was fighting for others. I made sure more women came to MIT, more poor whites and blacks, more minorities, because MIT's policies were really screwed up. I've, I organized the food service workers, so they got a better wage. I was the first one to protest a war in Iraq. In my PhD graduation, I pulled out this huge sign. Half of the crowd booed me, and the other half you know, gave me a standing ovation. So I've always been a fighter. But what, what the important journey here was, Kim, was a very deep journey. It's hard to, I've talked to women who've been raped, and when they get raped, they think they did something wrong. So I'm seeing all this shit out there. I'm like, wow, maybe I didn't invent email. Well, am I a liar? So one of my students in my class, Devin Sparks, he felt so bad. He went through every microfiche in the MIT library prior to 1978. Because we're thinking, why did someone use the word email? Did I not create it? And lo and behold, he finds a document 
written by a guy called David Crocker, who was attacking me at the time, saying, oh, this guy didn't invent email. Email was a collaboration of the military industrial acad academia. It surely could not have been done by one, one individual. Well, it was done by one individual. What they created was a simple form of text messaging, which they conflated to email after the work was done. So when my stuff went in, it was like a bomb went off. What was the bomb? The bomb was that I had created email before I came to MIT, not solving a military problem, but solving a civilian problem where I had moved women from the typewriter to the keyboard. And I had done all those features that David Crocker had written in 1977 was impossible. Because see, these were old white guys trying to send simple text messages. In fact, if you want to brand that as email, that would go to Samuel Morse. But I created email, the system as we know it today. But I had to go through this journey. I said, shit, I got to now defend this, not for me, but that 14-year-old boy. And it was a very deeply spiritual and emotional journey. I had to create the inventor of email site. I had to then put all the facts out there. And I had to move from being this humble Indian to be, becoming someone who defended not me, but this much deeper issue that innovation can occur anytime, any place by anybody. You don't have to go to MIT to be deemed the anointed one. The fact is, I wrote all the code. I have the freaking copyright. Right. You know, but the, this is a problem for the military and that all these foolish nerds who don't know anything about this thing, oh, the ARPANET. Well, the ARPANET was just this little network of a bunch of people trying to exchange text messages. That is not email. That would be like saying Facebook is email or Twitter is email. These are completely different platforms. When you, what maybe this nerd did, Ray Tomlinson, and by the way, it's fascinating is when this stuff went to the Smithsonian the year before Raytheon, which is the biggest $37 billion company, had bought this company, BBNN, where this guy worked, who looks like out of central casting, who looks like a nerd. You see, so they had branded Raytheon as the inventors of email, and they were making $270 million from cybersecurity contracts. Well, it's right. all bullshit. So yeah. that is the actual journey. So Wikipedia, all my stuff was taken down. I'm suddenly a fraud and a liar. But what I think really troubles people, a friend of mine is a very, very insightful guy, goes, Shiva, you know what really bothers people? Um, in fact, Kevin Ryan, who was a head of Business Insider, said something interesting. Kevin said, you know, the facts are so black and white, you invented email. The issue is why is there a controversy? Do I have to be white? Do I have to be blue-eyed, blonde? And does my last name have to be Einstein? Because this is a central issue. And should this have been done at MIT? You see, Philo Farnsworth was a young schoolboy who did invent TV. Everyone should go look at his history. He didn't have to deal with the skin color, but he did it in Idaho, Franklin, Idaho, from where, you know, where you're from. He did it in the very similar circumstances, not the military industrial academic complex, but in the triangle of a loving family, amazing public school teachers who cared about this kid, and a mentor who gave me infrastructure. You see, what they're trying to rewrite history, Kim, is that all great innovations must come from the military industrial academic complex, that we have to go kill people to create. And um, a, a real unfortunate person is Walter Isaacson, one of the elite liberals. In the middle of this controversy, Isaacson writes a book. It's like he was commissioned to do this. And the book says, Innovators of the Digital Revolution. Isn't email part of the digital revolution? And you go through that book, I'm sorry, I've never played the race card, everyone is white. 
And then in the book, he attributes all great innovations to the military industrial academic complex. And this is a brainwashing that has gone on, that all great innovations must come from war. The truth about the invention of email reveals something much more deeper, that innovation can occur anytime, anyplace by, by anybody. It can occur by Philo Farnsworth. It took him 60 years. Finally, there's a statue of him in Congress. But the truth is, I invented email. And the bigger truth is that anyone can invent things like email. And it has been occurring throughout history. Innovation is in everyone's DNA. What I believe has occurred is that the liberal elites specifically have created this narrative that, oh, after you go to MIT or Harvard, and by the way, you can drop out. That's pretty cool. That's cheeky, like Bill Gates or Zuckerberg. Then you get anointed to be an inventor. And the really thing that bugs them is that Indians are supposed to shake their head and accept it. I'm not a good Indian. I curse. I call Booby F. and Kennedy I, because I remember where I came from. I do not come from the Brahmins. I came from everyday working people in New Jersey who do curse. And I come from poor village farmers who I've never forgotten. And I have a, I'm independent. I'm not in this left or right camp. But the invention of email is an important, not only a story. By the way, four years later in 2016, when I was out in Malibu, finally I met this lawyer called Charles Harder. Um, if you remember, Hulk Hogan had sued Gawker Media for, um, he won the $140 million loss. Was it a sex tape? A sex tape. Yeah. Gawker was a clickbaiting organization. So Charles looked at it, he goes, oh my God, you invented email. He took it on contingency, which, you know, he's charging $1,400 on Rodeo Drive, right? He said, Jesus, you created email. We not, after I filed my $35 million lawsuit, Gawker claimed bankruptcy. Here's the karma of it. That's why I believe there's a God. I was appointed chairman of the bankruptcy committee to sell Gawker to Univision. The new board members of Univision unanimously ruled to take down those three defamatory articles and give me close to a million dollar settlement. So the bottom line is a 14 year old, dark skinned Indian kid in Newark, New Jersey, in a small medical college invented email, not the military industrial academic complex, period. There's no even controversy on this except, and there's in fact not even a gray area. It's a fabricated controversy. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I don't even know if it really has to do with, oh, it's got to come from the military or war. Or it has to come from this white, nerdy looking person. I think it has more to do with the military wanting to have ownership over what they think could be weaponized. We see them also doing the same sort of thing with energy. So there's people who invent really unique, new ways, innovative ways to have energy, to give the world energy. And what happens? They get killed. I mean, luckily, you didn't get killed, but they're trying to kill your reputation. They're trying to take that away from you so that the character military is the one who, yeah, character assassination. They did this with, you know, internet, uh, now email. They they claim that they they want the ownership of any innovation that could be weaponized. And that is, I think, the fundamental real motivation behind wanting to say that it was, I thought his name was, it was Ray Tomlinson, right, who, who they claim. Ray claimed, Tomlinson, yeah. Right, so, who they claim. So you're bringing out something interesting. Yeah. So we, we, after we won the lawsuit, we created a site called Who Invented Email? And we got amazing testimonials from people all over the world. In fact, a guy in the military. You see, what the military was doing was creating these, because they're a military model, single communications, do this, take this out, right? If you think about email, email could only have come up in a civilian environment. It's a meeting for collaboration. I'm sending you an email. I CC someone. So if I'm going to hire Jason, I say, hey, Bob, can... Here's Jason's resume. What do you think about it? Email was the first meeting for collaboration. The military is not about collaboration. It's about point-to-point yeah. -point communication. So it's two things. What you're saying is absolutely true. 
But the other thing is they must brainwash the public. Oh, you give us billions of dollars. Oh, aren't you lucky you got Tang or Velcro? Which, by the way, the military didn't create either. So they try to <laughs> say that, that civilian uh, innovations come from you funding war. You know, in India, in Tamil, we say you can touch your nose like this, or you can touch it around your head. So they want us to feel good that they went around our head, right. killed millions of people, and you got this, and you should be so happy. So it's an absolute brainwashing. And that yeah. brainwashing is what the invention of email, besides the fact that I created, and now I have to, the other thing uh, I think that's really important about this, Kim, is credit. So when I first talked, oh, why do you want credit for the Shiva? Why are you being arrogant? Like I had to go through that bullshit, right? Well, credit matters. Go to Hollywood. They're fighting tooth and nail. My name should be first. My name should be second, right? The reason credit matters because it gives the actual next set of innovators where innovation comes from. It, it's a very, credit is important. They say, oh, you don't have to go to Harvard. You don't have to go to, you don't have to be ordained. You could be a kid in Newark, New Jersey. And I did, you know how much I was paid? I was paid nothing. I was given free food in the cafeteria. I was so excited to have access to these machines. I mean, I would go in with my briefcase as a 14 year old kid. Everyone was 40 years old, 60 years old. And I saw it as such an amazing opportunity. In the third year, I got paid a buck 25 per hour. If you add it up, it was 5,000 bucks. The other big thing here, um, Kim, is how does innovation take place? Do you build these centers like genetically engineering innovation at MIT and Kendall Square or Silicon Valley? Or do you is innovation a weed, which is what I believe it is? So maybe we give kids, smart kids, 5,000 bucks all over the world. Maybe they're going to invent things far bigger than email. And that yeah. is a hegemony of innovation that they want to control. They want to control who innovates and, like you say, how it will be weaponized, who will own it. Surely there's a lot more people besides me and Philo Farnsworth who could invent, but, and if they could do it outside of MIT, what does MIT mean then? What does yeah. Stanford mean? Well, you diminish their relevance. Right. You had a really good I've idea, to, you know, yeah. but pivoting, uh, but pig, piggybacking on the email conversation here. Um, you had a really good idea about the post office potentially creating, giving us individual email accounts so that our email, like right now, you know, I'm subject to Google, right? I've got tons of Google email accounts. Everything runs through Google. That's a private company. I've heard rumors that they're even shutting down email accounts of dissenters or people that they think might be committing crimes. They're able to do this because they're a private company. We've seen what's gone on with the Facebook files, with the Twitter files, how the government, uh, and, and we can get well, into the with, Twitter. With my lawsuit, yeah, which was right. concealed by all those people, yeah. We'll, get well actually, yeah. let's just briefly talk about that yeah. for a second, that you actually exposed the fact that the government, that there was a back channel between the government and Twitter conversing with one another. Is that right? Can you bring that over here, John? Let me show you something more of what we did, Kim. Uh, uh, and, and you can, um, I can't share anything here, right? But if you go to winbackfreedom.com, um, I'm going to show you something here. Um, okay. Kim, I don't know if you can see this, okay? Yeah. This entire diagram. Yeah. This is the entire censorship infrastructure that is in our federal lawsuit where we won the first injunction um, against government. So let's go. I, I want to, this relates very closely with email. Uh, let me just first address the email thing and I want to dovetail this. That's all right. Yeah. The important thing is the e email is if you think about email between 1978 to when I invented 19. 1978 and 1993, it was an inter-office application. You don't right. need the internet for email. You may remember we connected our own local area networks. And then after the web, the internet that existed became much more accessible, 
point and click, which is the WWW protocol, every person could have now access to email. Then you saw Hotmail and Gmail and all those kinds of things, right? Or AOL. So now email becomes a consumer application. Now in 1993, I had won my second life with email was I was working on my PhD on artificial intelligence technologies to be applied to a whole array of problems, face analysis, uh, you know, document analysis, um, uh, you know, ultrasonic signal analysis. And I realized that all these people are creating algorithms in their own little cubby holes, but I could create an Uber platform. And I, my thesis called information cybernetics. I was working on this in the middle of that, the white house emails now becoming coming into the white house. It wasn't prior to 1993 Clinton's in office at the time. And he had hired interns. I shouldn't use the word interns with Clinton, but he had hired in interns to read and sort email. And they had 167 buckets and they would read an email, print it out, and they would put it into one of these buckets and they would respond back to an email with print mail. So the White House was looking for technologies to automatically categorize email. Long story short, I was a graduate student. Five publicly traded companies were invited to this contest that was run by the National Institute of Standards on behalf of the Executive Office of the President. I ended up winning that contest. So I was in a conundrum. Do I do, pursue my PhD or leave and start an internet company? I chose to leave, much to the chagrin of all my advisors. So it's supposed to be a two-year stint. For 10 years, I created a company called Echo Mail. And that company would read email, analyze it for customer service, and route it. Quite an extraordinary company. Um, anyway, in the middle of that, 1997 is a very important date. Why is it important? That is the year that email volume overtook postal mail, snail mail volume. Snail yeah. mail volume went like this. And I said, wow. As a guy who created emails, I had an insight on that. I said, this is really dangerous. And someone who was an activist who enjoyed the Bill of really honored the Bill of Rights, I said, this is really dangerous. So I went to the senior executives at the Postal Service and I said, look, you guys are not in the business of just letters. You guys are in the communications business. Right. And when, when the founders created the First Amendment, they also created concomitantly the Postal Service, which was to give teeth to the First Amendment. And they created a police force that I could send you a letter and you could send me a letter. No one could interfere. That's how they made free speech equal free reach, which Musk is completely destroying. The founders had this concept. Everyone should be able to equally send a letter at a very simple price. Postal Service is quite an extraordinary organization. It is so interlinked with the First Amendment. A lot of people have forgotten this. So when I saw email, I said, this is really dangerous. Private companies where everyone was getting free email accounts. No one is reading the terms of service, which said they own your emails. So I told the Postal Service, you should create a public email service. And this would be quite extraordinary because people could choose, you know, like you choose FedEx or DHL, or you could choose Postal Service. They said, ah, get out of here. You're a 29-year-old kid. What do you know about our business? We're bigger than Walmart. Don't you understand that? We're never going to move to that. That makes no sense to us. Mm -hmm. 1997. 2011, the Postal Service is going out of business. Yeah. And I do a scathing article in time with Fast Company. And I say, these guys are a bunch of morons. They don't have the same level of innovativeness as Franklin did. And they should really have absorbed my understanding. And that goes viral. The head of the, the inspector general, Dave Williams, calls me, goes, Shiva, why are you attacking the Postal Service? You know, he hires me. And I don't know if it was try to quiet me down. They give me $100,000 to do two analytical commission me. To, and I showed them how the Postal Service can make two to $3 billion annually by offering a service like this. They do nothing. When I met with Trump, he did nothing with it. 
But the bottom line is that the private companies now own our physical email infrastructure. The founders never wanted this. And my right. thesis is like the postal service could become the bulwark infrastructure for mesh networks, which would support an equivalent of not only email, but also social media. Now, why yeah. is this important? Because encryption can be broken, but the simple law is that if anyone intercepts a communication in the postal service platform, it's a 22 year sentence in prison. That's far more important than any encryption that one person can break. And I still believe that is the ultimate solution. No one individual should own something like this. Yeah. Be it Elon Musk, be I, it, 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 and so this is a really, it's a great idea. I think that the, the so I, I'm with you on that. I think that that is potentially a really good solution because, you know, if the government, so this is where it gets tricky, right? So it seems like the solution would be that the government, the postal service would run this, this uh, email service, that they would give us email addresses or we would, you know, get them somehow from the, the post office. We would be able to exchange information with one another. But potentially, they could even create an equivalent to Twitter. It's like a town square. People can actually exactly. post their thoughts. Exactly. And but the, so the problem is you're going to have people say, oh, we don't want the government to have anything to do with that because then the government's going to yeah. spy on us. The government's going to interfere. But the reality is, is that the government is bound by the First Amendment. They're really not. There you I go. Mean, they could try. They could try, but they would get in trouble. The way they've been doing it with these social media companies is through the back door. They've been saying, well, we're not doing it. it. We're not doing it. They're doing it on their own. We, and, but then we find out they're pressuring them. And so that's why it's potentially mm -hmm. illegal. But we still have to prove that in court with the various cases. But it's directly illegal if they do it. And it's we've got a government entity that's yep. supposed to be delivering us our communications. The government's interfering. That would be directly an infringement, exactly. a violation of that First Amendment. So a lot of me does believe, actually, that, you know, I know a lot of people don't believe the government is the solution, but in some cases, in certain scenarios, it's just like I don't want private people owning roads because then they're maybe going to tell me I can't drive on them, right? I mean, there are exactly. certain services like the fire department, the police department, that I want the government to be in charge of because it needs to be a service for all without discrimination. Well, not only that, you can adjudicate it to your earlier point. There is, yeah. because what they've done is, you know, when I talked about our lawsuit in September 2020, we can go to that, I called it laundering censorship. So the government has created a way to launder censorship. This is yeah. why November 16, 2018 is when the First Amendment died. And this is why, you know, even though I was a Trump supporter at one point, I realized that in my view, he was brought in, remember 57% of Trumpers voted for Obama. So they used him for a while. And then they needed to manipulate, particularly the white working class in this country, who are the tip of the spear of the really the movement for for freedom. And they needed mm -hmm. to quiet them down. So they bring Trump in and he signs into law on November 16th, 2018, CISA, the creation of CISA. Let's talk about this because the first, you know, December 15, 1791, one of the most extraordinary things takes place in human history. A, a group of people get something called the First Amendment. And the particulars of the First Amendment are this Congress shall pass no law to bridge freedom of speech. This is amazing. And still to this day, we're led to believe 4% of the humanity has that right. India doesn't have that right. Britain doesn't have that right. No, none of the Commonwealth countries do. So Trump signs into law CISA. CISA is the one that created that infrastructure that I showed you. They were authorized to do that. And every, I don't know if you read the, the vote count on this uh, roll call. It was unanimous 
Everyone in Congress, everyone, Republican and Democrat, voted for that. And it was unanimous consent on the Senate side. Unanimous. So think about Congress shall pass no law to bridge freedom of speech. Congress passed a law to destroy freedom of speech because CISA gave this extraordinary ability for government to build the backdoor portals to social media companies, which is what my lawsuit uncovered in 2020. How did that occur? Well, first I ran for office in 2018 against the fake Indian Elizabeth Warren. Some of you may remember this, um, this thing we put out. Um, it was great. It was a great advertising slogan. <laughs> Only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. Um, and we destroyed her career. We're the ones who made, forced her to take the DNA test, not on the issue of anything doing with race, but on the issue with integrity. Then, when, then I decided, okay, I'm going to give the Republicans a chance. You would think they would surely embrace someone like me, all the credentials, bottoms up, meritocracy. And in Massachusetts, when we ran, the Republicans were so annoyed with me because we were independent in some sense. Kim, we had 3,000 volunteers on the ground. We had uh, 25,000 lawn signs, 10,000 bumper stickers. We were everywhere. We raised $1, $5 donations, $2 million in a primary race, unheard of in Massachusetts. Republicans never even run primaries. They just give it away to the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And on election night on September 1st, 2020, the word on the street is Dr. Shiva is going to win this on a landslide. So what happened? September 1st, 2020, there's nine counties in Massachusetts. And I never thought election fraud ever took place in the United States. I, that's only, quote unquote, third world countries. The results come in in Franklin County, which is all working class people, hand counted paper ballots. I win by 10 points. And in every other county, 60, 40, 60, 40, where they all use machines. And that's when I had to put my hat on as an engineer, as a scientist with all my degrees from MIT and say, wait a minute, how do these voting machines work? And I was the one who discovered on those voting machines, there's a feature called a weighted race feature where you can multiply. So if you got a thousand votes, Kim, and I got a thousand votes, I can multiply your votes by two and debase my votes by 0.5. It's a feature. It was Why? created for housing. Great question. So these voting companies sell their voting machines everywhere. Imagine you're a 10,000 unit condo association and you own 2000 square feet and I own a thousand square feet. So in that wow. case, if you're making a decision on a maintenance issue, you get you know, two to one. Okay, makes sense there. But those features were left in these voting machines. Mm. So um, now when a paper ballot goes through the voting machines, it creates an image, a ballot image. And that ballot image is analyzed by the AI on that machine. So having started reading all the law, me sort of nerding out on this over a five day period, I found a law called 52 USC 20701 which was passed by a Democrat majority to stop discrimination among you know, minorities who were denied votes. And they want to be able to audit elections. Auditing of elections was seen to be a good thing. And it said that for 22 months after an election, during that period, all data, all data in connection with a federal election must be preserved. Well, ballot images are surely all data. So one of my volunteers and I go to the Secretary of State's office called Bill Galvin with a camera. And we say, hey, we'd like those ballot images. And here's my FOIA request. The guy behind the counter gloats and goes, ha, 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 we turned that feature off. We don't have to save ballot images. Anyway, they have 10 days from September 10th when I submitted it, 10 business days to respond. Well, September 24th, 2020, they don't respond. I say, where's your response? You're violating law. So then they send me an email saying, we don't need to save ballot images. I said, can you tell, give me the law? They send me some nonsensical PDF 
to a voting machine's manual. And I go, this has nothing to do with it. I said, you guys violated federal law. Up until that point, Kim, I have about 300,000 followers on Twitter. And I'm a bona fide federal candidate because we moved our candidacy to a write-in campaign. You have to understand, we raised $2 million off Twitter. Twitter is the most important platform for politics. Instagram may be for celebrities. Facebook is for right. friends and families. But Twitter is the de facto platform. So I take my four emails, which are public property, and I say Massachusetts destroyed one million ballot images. Didn't say ballots. And it starts going viral. And I share the four emails with the Secretary of State's general counsel, Michelle Tassinari, who's in that diagram, says, you know, we don't have to say ballot images. That starts going viral. Suddenly I get taken down, never been taken down since 2007. I'm running for federal office, right? So I still have 60 days. And Reuters, another <laughs> ridiculous organization, puts out a press release saying, Shivaya Duray taken off Twitter because he was saying ballots were destroyed. You see, they left out the word images. And then a fact-checking organization does a blessing in disguise for me. They said, yeah, he's lying, but they say, we contacted the Secretary of State and they told us the government of Massachusetts contacted Twitter. And I go, whoa, 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 government, like you said, the reason sometimes it's good to have government own these things is government, the highest form of speech is political speech. So the government, according to that report, had contacted Twitter. So immediately I look for lawyers to file a First Amendment lawsuit. I'm still running for office in a federal U.S. Senate campaign. No lawyer wanted to take this, Kim. Why? Because the Secretary of State is a guy called Bill Galvin. He's known as the Prince of Darkness. He owns every freaking politician in Massachusetts, every judge. So I had to do this myself. I don't know law. I've never represented myself in federal court. I had to go study state action. I file not only the lawsuit against the government. Remember, I filed against the government, not against Twitter. And in that lawsuit, I file a PI, a preliminary injunction. Judges do not like to give PIs unless it's an emergency and you're likely going to win the overall lawsuit. So anyway, I go, I think October 15th, some, somewhere around there, into federal court. I was given the PI hearing, which itself is a big victory. I wrote to Tucker Carlson, who I call another name, starting with an F. Okay, you can add it, okay? Because the reason I called him that is he claims to be a fighter for free speech, you know, a patriot. This guy got everything I gave him. He got, I said, Tucker, I have the most important lawsuit violating free speech. Then on October 15th, me and the judge cross-examine the social media director of the Secretary of State, the government of Massachusetts. The judge says, how did you decide to throw Dr. Shiva off? Why? He goes, oh, he was spreading misinformation. What was the misinformation? He was saying ballots were destroyed, which I didn't say, he said ballot images. Nonetheless, the judge says, well, what did you do? She goes, well, we, we, we wanted this down. He goes, what did you do? Well, we contacted Twitter. He goes, how did you do that? He goes, we have a portal, the partner support portal. He goes, what's that? He goes, we get VIP treatment. And he goes, really? And he goes, what did you do? He goes, we informed that he needed to, you know, this needed to come down. And he goes, what happened? This is all in transcript, Kim. And we put it, we had it up on winbackfreedom.com. It's all up there for the entire world to see. And people like Bannon and Gateway Pundit were the only two guys that covered this, right? And they were seen as fringe. So the the judge says what did you do he goes well you know we saw that his tweets were taken down he goes how did you feel because we felt relieved <laughs> a united states senate candidate not in africa not in zimbabwe not in chile 
The government is contacting a private company, getting them to take it down. And who did it was Michelle Tassinari. Now, who is Michelle Tassinari? She's not only the general counsel of the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, but she's also, at that time, was one of the executive board members of CISA, the General Executive Committee. She shows up everywhere. So when I had exposed, so here I had discovered the partner support portal, the backdoor portal, the judge is appalled. Kimmy goes, I may be 72 years old, but I have a picture of Louis Brandeis here. And did you guys not think that if you didn't like his speech, why didn't you just go on Twitter and argue it out with him? You know, there's something called the First Amendment. You know, you can reply back to bad speech with your good speech. Had you right. thought about that? And they're like, no. So the judge gives me all the terms of my preliminary injunction. You will no longer contact Twitter if you have a problem. This is his history making. No one covered it. No one, especially fucker Carlson. And he had access to it. Neither did Glenn Greenwald. Neither did the ACLU. You know, Glenn makes a lot of fucking money talking about he's fighting big tech. But this is a, this is a lawsuit of the century. So anyway, guess when I get put, put back on Twitter? On November 4th, after the election's over. For 60 days, I'm off Twitter on the most important platform. And by the way, we had 3,000 volunteers putting out little cards Two million cards. I don't have one of them here, but they look like this, Kim. Door to door, two million cards, stop election fraud. That's how, what we mobilized. Long before Trump used election fraud to make a shitload of money off my analysis. And that's a whole nother show we can do. But the bottom line is that we had them by the short hairs. We exposed this. It was a federal injunction that was against government. That's history making. Well, on November 4th, I'm put back on. I'm tweeting away on all sorts of things. You know, I was the first one to expose Fauci, first one to speak out against lockdowns. While Booby fucking Kennedy was promoting lockdowns. He promoted lockdowns. Trump promoted lockdowns. And everyone needs to understand that. As a scientist, I put my reputation on the line. I said, these lockdowns are ridiculous. Fauci is a scumbag. On March 23rd, 2020, I'd written a letter to Trump. Fire him, get rid of him. We don't need to do lockdowns. Marla Maples had delivered that letter directly, personally to him. Anyway, I'm tweeting away on all this stuff. On February 1st, a lot of my followers like, Dr. Shiva, what's going on with your bigger lawsuit? You know, we want to know. So anyway, I say, this is what's going on. I do a long live video, and I once again share those four emails. Within 17 minutes of finishing that, Kim, I'm thrown off Twitter. Deplatform for good. I go back into court again. The next, again, I have to do it. By the way, the first lawsuit was me pro se against three Harvard lawyers. But in that first lawsuit, we'd also discovered not only did the governor of Massachusetts call Twitter to silence me, but the National Association of State Election Directors, a woman called Amy Cohen, whose organization also gets funded by Mark Zuckerberg. $50 million they got funded, the Center for Election Innovation Research. Amy Cohen, on behalf of all the 50 state election directors, also had the portal. They also call Twitter. Okay? So when I go, so the judge, we go back and the judge says, I want to give you restitution, but you got to bring Twitter into my courtroom. So now it's me against seven lawyers, most of them from Harvard. Twitter has three of the most, the, the biggest law firm in the world, Wilmer and Hale. So on May 25th, the next hearing is set. Again, we're publishing this. We're telling fucker Carlson about this. Cover this for God's sakes. Give your megaphone. I mean, it's like we're in the trenches fighting like soldiers. And what did this guy do? Nothing. He concealed it. Glenn Greenwald concealed it. The ACLU concealed it. So May 25th, the hearing comes. Now remember, the first time I'd heard about partner support portal was in that hearing. 
And I'm trying to figure out what is this PSP? And the night before the lawsuit, I had to get my briefs together. I had to prepare for my opening testimony. And at 2 a.m., Kim, I find this document on a server in England where the partner support portal of Twitter's was developed by Katie Minshall, who was a chief general counsel for Twitter. And remember, the British hate the First Amendment. Let's not forget that idiot Harry, Prince Harry said, oh, the First Amendment is bonkers. Let's not forget the royalty hate the freaking First Amendment. And so the portal for Twitter was first deployed as a beta test in England so parliamentarians could use it to suppress British citizen speech. Then it was deployed in India, another British Commonwealth country, then in Taiwan, and then in New Zealand and brought to the United States in um, 2018. And at a big meeting that was held at Harvard under the aegis of Belfer School called Defending Democracy, quite an anodyne term, led by a guy called Robbie Mook, who was Clinton's campaign manager, and a whole bunch of Democrats and Republicans, they put together the playbooks. Actual documents, Kim, step-by-step -step manuals that detail how you will identify an influence operator, someone who they decide is against the government, okay? And one of the keywords is, if you, one of the sentences, if you say something that government officials are corrupt for elections, which is what I had done. It's literally written in that book in black and white. And then the next playbook says how you will blacklist them, how you will watch them, and how you will continually observe them. So the first time I was taken out, I was put on the blacklist. So the next time they saw it, I had to explain to the judge how algorithms work. I said, Your Honor, they lied to you because the first time they informed Twitter, I was in there, you know, the you know the, the ghost in the machine. So the judge, so I find this document, everything, Kim, the playbooks, the actual manuals of censorship created by Democrat and Republican. Guess who the authors of that were? None other than Michelle Tassinari, none other than Twitter legal, none other than Republican and Democrat and the Pentagon officials. So I go into court, got about four hours of sleep, and I said, Your Honor, I'm holding in front of you the document that shows that the First Amendment has been destroyed and all of these defendants who have claimed to you that they didn't know each other were all involved in the destruction of the First Amendment. It was supposed to be a two-hour hearing. The judge is appalled. He asked me, submit all of this as evidence. The next morning he comes in and he goes, you know, Dr. Shiva, I got up at six in the morning and I read through everything. This lawsuit will be taught in every constitutional law class in the United States. And he goes, you have done, your briefs are incredible. You've done this without any help. I have the right out of courtroom funds to appoint you a constitutional lawyer. He goes, are you open to it? And I was a little bit hesitant, you know, because I don't trust lawyers by and large. And I had done all this on my own. In business, Kim, I've done so many of my own contracts. Most lawyers are dumb as doorknobs. You get a few which are really good, but most of them don't even learn to litigate anymore. Everything's settled on the courthouse steps. So... What ends up happening out of that is the judge appoints me a lawyer and his job was to brief up my lawsuit so if it went all the way to the Supreme Court, it would win. Well, seven days, few days before, and sorry, July of 2021, you may, I don't have it here, the Long Fuse Report comes out, written by Stanford, which I think is another headquarters for the CIA. And this is by the Stanford Internet Observatory, which was funded by the Atlantic Council out of Britain. And it lays out in 300 pages verifying that I was one of the top six super spreaders, along with Trump, Breitbart, and because I would do a tweet, apparently they would have a spread equivalent to Trump's. So I was put on a blacklist. It lays it out there. And it validates everything in the playbooks. 
So my attorney and I meet, I said, and that's when I built that diagram I shared with you, which is on winbackfreedom.com. And I said, Howard, we have to, you know, I'm not dropping any of my claims. He goes, Shiva, you're going to make history. You'll be the first guy on Twitter. You'll get so much publicity out of this. But drop all your claims against the government. And that's when I found out my lawyer was representing Dershowitz, another scumbag, okay, against the Epstein case. So the judge had appointed Howard Cooper to think that I would sell out. I would be so happy to get all the views and clicks, right, to be the first guy put back on Twitter, the hero, but I would drop all the claims against the government. I had all the predicates, Kim, to expose the individuals who were involved in this RICO. And Howard Cooper says, if you don't take this down, you're, if you don't drop all the other claims, I'm going to leave you as your lawyer. I only have three days left. He's done nothing, Kim. I said, fuck you. So I had to fire him. Three days, day and night, Kim, I had to put together all those briefs. I go into court. Everything's flipped. My own lawyer, who I fired, all the other seven lawyers, and you could see they had all gotten together. And the judge is like, I'm going to sanction you. Why didn't you drop all those other claims, as your lawyer said? You know, Yes, I'm going to give you, I wanted to, basically, we're going to put you back on Twitter, toast their martinis and Martha's Vineyard, like good liberal imperialists, and be good that they put this darky back on Twitter. And is, you know, we got rid of this rabble rouser, but we protected the First Amendment. No, you didn't, because you wanted to let all the government officials get away. So I'm being mauled, in, and there's thousands of people. By the way, Robert Booby fucking Kennedy sent his people to watch all of our hearings. Everyone saw our hearings, thousands of people. This is during COVID. So I am like being crucified because they wanted me to just get back on Twitter, Kim, drop everything against the government. So I'm listening to this crazy shit saying, you're going to be, you're violating rule 11. We're going to throw the book at you. We're going to prosecute you. And I said, you know what? All this nonsense you're telling me has nothing to do with anything but the fact that you want to let the government get away with the fact that they establish a government infrastructure to silence the speech of every American. Judge, judge starts waving his hands at me was crazy. So the judge seals my lawsuit, Kim, a civil lawsuit, because he didn't want that diagram coming out. So what I did was he orders me under threat of all sorts of criminal penalties to just file the lawsuit with that one claim, injunctive relief. I filed it, but I got everything in there. And then I said, fuck you. And I walked away. I said, you know what? I don't want to just go back on Twitter and then sell out everything I stood for what this country was about. Why my father said when we came here, and you may remember your immigrant parents. My dad said, when we got off the plane, he goes, the only reason I brought you guys here is one word, freedom. And that's what I remembered. I wasn't willing to sell out. Now, all of that stuff was out there and we're screaming to all these people who claim to be conservatives to help us. They did shit. Fast forward to October 28th, 2022. Musk is saying, let this sink in. Bullshitter Maximus. And I put out a post on Facebook. I said, Elon, if you, want to, if you want to talk about free speech, call me. The backdoor portal exists. Are you going to take it down? Go review our lawsuit. The next day, Kim, like timing, The Intercept, which is a government front end, okay, puts out a news story. Oh, my God, DHS leaks. We found this backdoor portal. It literally plagiarized one piece of, my law, piece of the lawsuit, which is called a limited hangout, which I've came to find as a CIA technique, where you take a little piece to quiet the masses down. Then fucker Carlson puts Lee Fang on his TV sh show. And we have all the transcripts. He goes, oh my God, Lee, how come everyone ignored this? You fucking ignored it. Fucker Carlson ignored it. He's an actor. So 
what happens? So I get put back on Twitter. They thought I would be a good house slave, bow down to Musk. So the first tweet I do gets around 20 to 30 million views. I go, Elon, why don't I become your Twitter CEO since you're looking for one? I invented email, I got all the credentials, and I stand for free speech. That goes viral. The next day, I said, Elon, are you gonna take down the backdoor portal? I do, so if you look at my tweets in December, four tweets on that. Clayton Morris from Redacted, in a big Twitter spaces, he said, Elon, Dr. Shiva's lawsuit discovered this backdoor infrastructure. Are you gonna remove it and how do you reconcile that with your position as a free speech absolutist? He goes, ooh, that sounds like big brother. I'll get back to you. Complete acting, nothing happens. And then I start escalating my tweets, Kim. The next January, 15 tweets. Elon, are you gonna take down this fucking portal? Here's all the data. And my tweet, my impressions go from 500,000 views per day down to 300,000, now down to 10,000 views because I was attacking this fool. And you have to understand, if you're really gonna be sincere about it, where Elon Musk begins and where government ends, nobody knows. The guy's invented nothing. He was, he's a creation of Silicon Valley because Vijay Agade and Jack Dorsey were open fascists. They would say, oh, you're talking about vaccines, you're gone. But Silicon Valley and Congress are like this. Why? Because a social media platform gets a 10X on valuation of revenue. A publishing company like the New York Times gets a 2X. So if the New York Times makes a billion, they're only worth 2 billion. But if Twitter makes a billion, they're worth 10 billion. Who came up with these valuations? Well, Twitter was given this valuation on a social media platform for the simple reason they got Section 230 indemnity. You can't sue a social media company. You can sue the New York Times. So because they're preventable from lawsuits, they get a higher valuation. And in order to get that valuation, they struck the devil's deal, which is government will have access to the back door. That is what Silicon Valley did. They sold us all out. So Jack Dorsey was doing it openly. They brought in this fool Musk, wherever he goes, none of his companies have ever worked, right? PayPal wasn't his. And PayPal was bought by Peter Thiel and later by Pierre Omidyar, who's the one who created that backdoor portal, the Center for Internet Security, which The Intercept left out of their article. So you see, that's why I did that video called The Swarm, when we really look at this. And so now you have a cabal. Robert fucking Kennedy bows down to Musk. Oh, you're fighting censorship. Are you fucking serious? Why does he get called into the subcommittee? And I don't. I'm the one who discovered all this because they're trying to beef up Kennedy as though he's a warrior. The guy is a Zionist. He supports racism. If you look at the speech with, uh, with, that, with that guy, Shmoli Borich, I mean, this is like going back to 1947, the most abusive shit you can see. He says, oh, the Ukraine war, we're there for the right reasons. Then the next thing, he plays this ambiguous game. Kennedy's a master of ambiguity like the Kennedys are. Supported lockdowns and then attacks Biden and Trump for lockdowns. I was the one who did four major demonstrations. So what kind of leaders do we want, Kim? Do we want these scumbags who say one thing and do another? That's the question here. And our movement, my running for president, is to remind people that the working people of this country do not have to choose a lesser of two evils. If you look at the data right now, since 1980 to today, the American lifespan is going like this. You know, um, I have a little graph here. You know, I go out to the train stations and I distribute this flyer. And this flyer has that graph right there, Kim, if you can see it, okay? Mm -hmm. It says a lesser of two evils is killing your children. And if you see that graph, it pretty much nails it, how all of these people are scumbags. That red line is 
And this has been going on since 1980. And it's not the vaccines. It's the aggregation. It's a system of policies. It's a system of policies of the stress that people undergo, the income inequality, the transfer of wealth. And it involves Obamacare, right? It involves everything that they've been doing to destroy the working people in this country. And I have to say, without any reservation, Robert Kennedy, Donald Trump, all these people in Congress, they hate America. They, they're not patriots. Because where are they patriots, including fucker Carlson? A, he would have given limelight to our lawsuit. Why didn't he do that? Because I'm not a good Indian, quote unquote. I'm not a Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a fucking Brahmin guy who came with everything given to him. He's just a used car salesman. You know, woke, well, you have now you have woke conservatives and you have woke liberals. And what we are at is a very important turning point. Do the American people want someone who's a real fighter, who has actually experienced injustice every day from the time he was born to today and has fought it? Or do they want these people mouthing, I know your plight? No, you don't. Robert Kennedy files fucking Falcons. He bangs whoever he wants, violates his own wife, has people vaccinated when they come into their home. I mean, I know so many friends who got divorced on the vaccine issue, and then he blames his wife. This guy's a misogynist maximus. Why would any women support this fucking guy? He lies through his teeth. And look, I have emails from Robert Kennedy to a former friend, a young man who used to work at Children's Health Defense Fund. He knows he's taking the role of what, what I call the not-so-obvious establishment. The Kennedys have a history of being liberal imperialists. John Kennedy was, had venereal disease. He, sh he was never allowed into the Navy. Okay, His father, he blew up, got him into the Navy. Blew they created this bullshit royalty of the Camelot. I mean, Robert F. Kennedy, he's not a peacenik. On the floor of the Senate, go read a speech. Yes, we must stay in Vietnam. And Robert Kennedy showed all of his fangs when he said he supported Zionism, openly, racist Zionism. You know, when, there, when Mir Kahane came here to Brandeis, I read one of the biggest demonstrations against him. So Zionism is racism in the service of globalism, imperialism. Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. And if you're supporting Zionism, you want to support the war machine, period. So he has to kowtow down to the Sheldon Adelsons who's passed to get their money. And this is not the America that my father came to or your immigrant parents came to. The bottom line is this, if Israel and Palestine should be let loose, no more funding at all, let loose, not one penny. Look, I went to an all Jewish high school in my last three years, and I, I graduated number one of about 800 kids. The biggest discrimination I would have is Jewish people think they're the chosen people. And my fellow students, really nice kids, they'd go to Israel, come back after you know their summer, and they all wanted to kill every Arab. I mean, it was crazy. And if you think about the actual history, the European Jews who came to Israel, even from a bloodline perspective, they have nothing to do with the Hebrew Jews. And this has been many, many genetic studies have done. In fact, many Arabs were Jews. Many Arabs converted to Islam because right. of the discrimination. They were right. butchered. So when it comes to Israel, it's black or white. And I would say I'm the only presidential candidate who's absolutely clear on this. Zionism is racism in the service of imperialism. And we should have nothing to do with Israel or Palestine. Let them figure it out. Let yeah. them fight it out and figure it out. So yeah. Robert fucking Kennedy and Donald Trump are the actual elements that the establishment is putting forward. One of the things I've learned, I teach people system science, Kim. When you understand the knowledge of systems, 
you can start seeing the world beyond left or right. You start seeing it problems as they are. You know, I, I, I used to teach a course at MIT, the elites know system science. They do not want the masses to understand the science of systems. Everything is a system now. And there are nine principles which I can teach anyone. Learn, teach, and serve. So part of our movement is to awaken people that the left and the right have sold you out, and they have gotten very, very clever since 1970, Kim, to create these fake heroes. Jesse Jackson was one of them, if you remember the 1980 election, right? Obama was part of that, and obviously Bernie Sanders, right? But when I see someone like me, that we have created a global movement, about half a billion people know about our movement, we have 400,000 people who have gone through our training, they say, holy shit, this guy has figured us out, and he's not letting up. So now we need to push Trump, the drama, the theater of Trump, and the theater of Kennedy. But when you really look at these guys, they're all part of the establishment. And the defining thing is Israel and Zionism. Yeah. It pretty much defines it right there. Yeah. So there you go, Kim. But the bottom line is, you know, if you look back at 2020, I led. And I got maybe two hours sleep, Kim, while I was running my companies. No one paid us a penny for any of that. We expose all the election system stuff, and none of them have been addressed. Chain of custody and signature verification. When I met with Trump for two hours, I said, what the hell did you do with that half a billion dollars you raised off my work? He made money off of it, right? Children's Health Defense Funds, they're telling people medical freedom, all these mothers give the money, but you then vaccinated all your kids, right? Booby fucking Kennedy, every one of his kids gets vaccinated. Don't vaccinate your kids. It violates the Nuremberg Code, but in your own home, everyone had to be vaccinated. It's time, I think, Kim, people recognize that they do not care about you. And it's time we really look where our leaders come from. Are they coming from bottoms up? Why are we giving away our, any of our, our, our love to people who are one of them, who have golden-plated toilets, right? who grew up with Falcons and who can, whose fathers can kill, whose uncles can kill people and get away right here, Ted Kennedy. But they have amazing PR. Come on, they have a PR machine Maximus who can take Charles Manson and make him Jesus Christ. And that's what our campaign is about. It's about saying, why do you want to settle for the lesser of two evils? And the only reason you will want to do that is because you're okay with your child right now having a shorter lifespan than you. And that is what they've delivered. So this is very personal and collective to me, Kim. It's not just a campaign. You see, um, you know, I've been an activist all my life. You can go talk to any of my professors at MIT. You know, this has been, and I've had to be a scientist, and I've had to be a good student, and I've had to succeed. You know, so it's been a lot of effort. But who do I support? I support working people. I support people like you who work hard. I thank you for putting me on because Joe Rogan won't do it. Candace Owens won't do, but they'll put Andrew Tate on a disgusting <laughs> human being. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So these people are all part of the neo media establishment. So the old media establishment is dying. So they're creating the fucker Carlson's and the Rogan's and that Russell brands. And so that's why I, I really uh, appreciate what you're doing. And I was frankly surprised, you know, uh, you know surprised that after you had Kennedy on, you'd let me go off on him. But he's an absolute scumbag. I, and so I mean, is Donald I think, Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely are a very vocal critic of all of these, you know, of, of uh, RFK Jr., Trump, Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson. I do think, though, and I hear a lot of criticism about, like, RFK Jr. in particular, for example. 
Um, but I do think that some of the most fair criticism that is not brought up very much at all, but that you've just brought up during this interview is the personal aspect. What type of leader do we want in this country? Who's the type of person? And when you look at the history of many of the leaders that we have now and many of the, le uh, many of the people who want to be leaders of this country, and you go back and you look through and you parse through their personal lives, I mean, I understand that there is an argument to be made that the personal life doesn't matter that much, but it does. It does. It matters because it's, it's the character, who's this person, what were their struggles, can they truly relate to the American people? Were they good people to the people around them? So did they screw them over? And if so, then where's their boundary? How do we know they're not going to screw us over when the time comes? So I do think that one of the more valid, really valid, and, and I hear you saying that he favored lockdowns. There was that original tweet that he did say, um, I've got it here. He says, coronavirus lockdown hasn't just slowed COVID-19. It reduced lethal air pollution, plus associated mortality. When lockdown lifts, risks of Status quo will return and could worsen as, gov as govs weaken environmental regs and pour billions into polluting industries. So I hear you. Uh, you make. Well, you know, not you only make that, Tim. Tim, the other, I think you brought up a very interesting point here, right? Megan Kelly had an interview with him, with Booby, right? And she's asking him, she does this preamble. She says, you know, uh, Herschel Walker said he was pro life, but then he had two abortions, right? Right. And then, you know, your uncle did this and your other uncle at Chappaquiddick and he's, you know, he's, he, you know, he's squirming in his chair and he, she actually didn't ask him any hard questions. He gave him a lot of softballs. Okay. But he said, well, you know, your personal integrity and public integrity are different. And he's telling to your face. Yes. He's telling to your face. <laughs> right. Now, right. in my view, my great grandfather was an indentured servant slave. The way I was brought up was you had to be a human being through and through. There's not a dis disengagement, you know, even from a spiritual perspective. You know, when you go read the old yoga sciences, you have six, seven chakras in your body, the crown chakra, you know, the if you believe this stuff, right? The upper yeah. chakras are really who you are. Your throat, throat chakra resides between your thoughts and then your bottom chakras, which are your deeds. And I would say symbolically, his voice sounds like that because he's fucked up, okay? He's openly telling you that my yeah, I can go murder people. I can do this here and I can do this. But you should trust me because what I say, not what I do. And that's what his whole family is about. And everyone can go through any of my stuff. Don't we deserve people? Isn't a leader supposed to be truly noble? Aren't we right. supposed to raise people's standards? Right. Are we supposed to? So if your leaders reflect your consciousness, that means you're going to say, well, I guess I can do this to my family and I can behave like the great guy outside. And that's not what leadership is. And what do you do when the shit hits the fan? March of 2020 was a shit was hitting the fan. And I called everything precisely. I said, fire Fauci. We're the ones who did the fire Fauci campaign. All these doctors, including that guy, Bhattacharya, was wrote a paper on lockdowns. He's promoted as a hero. Bullshit. All of these doctors stayed silent. Nurses, hardworking women stood up and they suffered. All these doctors were quiet. And then they waited until a year later, putting their finger in the air. They're opportunists. The issue is what do you do when the shit hits a fan? Delayed truth is deadly. Delayed action is deadly. So if you want to say that, well, I made a mistake. Well, you're not a fucking leader. I'm sorry. You're not a leader. Great. Go learn. Go get rehabilitated. But you don't deserve to lead. Go look at what I did in 2020. Call that fire Fauci. Did all the election system stuff. Put my ass on the line. Did the entire lawsuit.
That's yeah. what I did. And you can look at my whole history. And Kim, the other thing is, you know, you talk about struggle. I've had to struggle since I was a kid, four years old, going to a friend's house, playing soccer with him. And in a hot day, the mother spits at me and calls me the Shudra, which is the N word in India and says, and gives me water in a dilapidated cup because I was not worthy. That's when I realized this freaking caste system. And I asked my mother, my mother said, yeah, when I go to the well, they used to spit at me, call me a pig. Now my mother became homeless because her father ran away and she became, got a mathematics degree, a master's degree, an amazing freaking woman. And my dad grew up in war-torn Burma, never saw a book and they became extraordinary people. Those are who I identify with. People yeah. overcame incredible injustices. When I came to the United States at seven years old, I was a number one student. The teachers wouldn't allow me to take an exam to see who was a number one student. I wasn't invited. My yeah. mom went there and reamed this guy out. And my dad said, do you want to make a Hitler out of our son? They go, what are you saying? That's anti-Semitic. Well, that's what you're doing. He's got A plus on everything and you don't even invite him to the exam. And that same thing is going on right now. And that's why I appreciate you. Because Joe fucking Rogan follows me. He'll put Kennedy on for three hours, but he doesn't have the decency to put the guy on who's done all the work on GMOs. Eddie Bravo's called him. He goes, why don't you put Dr. Shiva on? Because Joe Rogan is fucking owned and paid for by Spotify. And they all go to Nobu. You know where Nobu is, right? Up in Malibu. They all yeah. hang out in the same restaurant. They all know Ari Emanuel, who runs all the agencies. He's the agent to Trump. He's the agent to Joe Rogan, all of them. Let's be honest. These guys are on the same cabal. And when they close their door, they say, oh, yeah, I'm fighting for medical freedom. What are you doing? Oh, I'm fighting for cancer. Oh, wonderful. Let's go get, you know, let's go get some steroid shots. Well, steroids are a $250 billion industry they're going to be. And they're going to be one of the biggest pandemics. And I'm, you're hearing this now as a biological engineer. They cause 1,000 times more chance, 10,000 times more chance of a blood clot then the COVID vaccine, both cause blood clots. So you're there injecting yourself and you're, that's Children's Health Defense Fund's front end guy. That's what kids are gonna go do. So we have to contend with these contradictions and you have to recognize what kind of leader do you want? It's very, that's very all important. Alleged. Because, but that's all alleged, right? The, the steroids that you're talking about. Well, you're, I mean, you're kind of accusing Joe Rogan and RFK. No, no, and he I admitted get it. They're it. all buff. They're buff. No, no, he so admitted it. He admitted I'm. He admitted I'm taking legal steroids. Oh, who did? Who? Which one? Robert Kennedy admitted in an interview. Go read the Daily Mail article. He admitted it. Now, legal steroids are TRT therapy. Okay. Why are Why is men's testosterone level low? That's a fundamental root cause issue. So that's we just testosterone replacement therapy, right? I mean, a lot of men do that. But, it's legal, but it is a legal steroid. Right. And it's okay. done in certain micros. Now, the theory is you're doing it in a dosaging range that you're watching everything, right? It's done under doctor yeah. supervision. So, but right. the bottom line is it's going to become a $250 billion industry by yeah. 2029. You can look it up. And mRNA Vax will be about $114 billion industry. Both cause blood clots. Well, this one causes a thousand statistically to 10,000 times, a minimum. Yeah. So if you care about people's health, why aren't you talking about, well, let's talk about why, why men's testosterone is low. Let's talk about all the shit that's taken place over the last 80 years. 
It's well, a you root get cause old. systemic. <laughs> I mean, you and know, you age, age just exactly. happens to all of us. And there's right. no, I mean, apparently there is a way to, to overcome some age, some issues with age by, yeah, the hormone replacement therapy, which men and women do. And you're right. You know, it is, it is one of those things where it hasn't been studied for long. You know, it's fairly new science, I believe. It hasn't it's been around be the for new a pandemic. really long time. Yeah, so potentially it's, it could look, be causing I study, a lot of... Kim, I don't know if you know yeah. what I do full time. You know, for my PhD work, I created a technology that can eliminate the need for animal testing. And my separate history from fighting has been a deep love of medicine. That's why I worked in a medical school. My grandmother was a traditional healer. And I saw her put together things in that, you know, every village in India always has a woman who's considered the wise woman. And in ancient systems of Indian medicine, they have a very powerful way to look at your face, look at your pulse, diagnose your particular constitution and find the right foods for you, right? Very different yeah. to me. And so that's what got me involved in medicine for my PhD work. When I came back after doing all the email stuff, I put together a new technology which can mathematically model the human cell on the computer. And using that, we're going after all these traditional medicines which have been poo-pooed and we're validating them. And so we're discovering new, very powerful combinations that come from nature. But one of the fundamental things you realize is that there are things that traditional medicine did that can, frankly, solve pretty much every disease. Now, the problem is if they say that, people call it woo-woo medicine, right? Mm -hmm. So with, you know, I've published in all the major journals and we've been doing it very quietly. We have a major paper coming out in the journal of periodontology where we mapped out every pathway in the mouth. And because of that is why it came out so vociferously against the masks, particularly for kids because it destroys your mouth microbiome, which will cause all sorts of other diseases. Yeah. So at a systems level, um, I think America deserves someone like me as their president. You know, I understand biology, I understand engineering. In many ways, I have great reverence for people like Washington and Jefferson. These guys actually did work. They mm -hmm. built shit. I don't know what Kennedy's built, you know, except a harem. I don't know what Trump has built, you know, except, a, you know, uh, the ability to manipulate people. When I was meeting with him, he was taking very careful. Well, that's a good messaging point. I could use that. They're about messaging, mm -hmm. messaging, messaging, messaging. But I think our campaign offers people a real alternative and to get beyond this brainwashing of choosing the lesser of two evils, Kim. And I think it's, I think Amer the American people deserve that. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. I wish that we had more candidates to choose from and, uh, and instead of continuing on in what just seems like the, you know, it's a circus, a constant <laughs> or a carousel of just going around it. Well, and it's just the same people over and over again with the same last names. And, you know, it's I, I'm sure there'll be another Trump who runs after Donald Sr. is done. And that'll maybe be Junior who starts running. You know, it's just the right. Right. And, and, yeah, and, at some and, point, and it'd be nice to get out of this. Yeah, and Booby's teeing up his son. He promoted him as a f going and fighting in Ukraine. You know where that story is going. They're already teeing that up. War heroes. They got yeah, this down so, to like science, a template, you know? It's it's certainly dynasties who've been running the American system and politics for a really long time. And if it isn't uh, dynasties in the front, the front-facing dynasties, there's behind-the-curtain dynasties who are absolutely running exactly. American politics. I don't think there was nice another to... Washington after George Washington. I don't think there was another Jefferson after Jefferson, you know? Yeah, well, things and have I changed, think we need that's to go for back. sure. Yeah. yeah, I think we need to recognize that the First and Second Amendments were brought to us by working people. And in the 1800s, Kim, and I like to really remark on this, what they do not want us doing, Kim, is to build independent movements. It was women in the 1800s 
in the early 1900s, starting right here in Lowell, Massachusetts, who read these very powerful bottoms up movements. The Democrats laughed at Susan B. Anthony when she asked for the right to vote. Susan B. Anthony wanted universal suffrage, not only for women, she was quite an extraordinary woman, woman, right? And it was those movements, working class movements, that had created a very powerful uh, set of events in American history. By the time Franklin Delano Roosevelt was there, the elites were so scared that they eliminated child labor. They gave us, like you said, highways and roads and bridges and clean water and all those things. It was movements. And those movements are what they do not want. By the 1950s, they brought in a, a crazy nut job like McCarthy who branded all of those people as communists, right? If they said workers unite. And on the other hand, the Democrats took over those bottoms up movements. So by yeah. 1970, all the unions are taken over by the Kennedys and the mob. And then the Republicans are out there calling everything socialist and communist if you say workers unite. So between 1900 to 1970, we had close to 150 million people striking in the United States. And that's why the American economy grew, because people wouldn't take shit. People were put on notice. As the GDP grew, everyone's wages grew. But after 1970, we have destroyed those bottoms up movements. Everything has been outsourced to a Bernie Sanders. Oh, Bernie will take care of it. The Clintons will take care of it. Obama will. And our goal is to teach people once again where we got any of these rights was bottoms up movements. So you will see me, you know, they, they try to make us invisible, Kim, but it's sort of, they're screwed because in 2020, about a half a billion people heard about us. So what's happening now is if you go see my Twitter feeds, why aren't you including Dr. Shiva? Why aren't you including Dr. Shiva? And their attempt to make me invisible is actually going to backfire on them. And those people like yourself and others who give us the opportunity to speak, you guys are going to be the future. Joe Rogan will be out of business. Mark my words in five years. And same with Russell Brand and all these people will be, or they'll be seen as a part of the neo-establishment swarm cabal. That's what they really are. And so I'm very, very excited with all of the emerging, truly independent journalists who are coming out. And I want to give my views to them because that's going to be the future of this country and for that matter, the future of the world. Well, Dr. Shiva, this has been a really interesting conversation. We do have to we do have to wrap it up. Uh, I'm sure we could talk much longer about so many so many other topics that we didn't actually get to touch on tonight. But really, do appreciate your time and you explaining a lot. And I think you have a lot of interesting viewpoints. And I think a lot of people would be interested in more of what you have to say. So, where can people find more of the topics that you talk about? I mean, you do bring up a lot about a variety of different people, a variety of different issues. So, where can they find you? So, Kim, they can go to shivaforpresident.com. And, okay. you know, we really believe everyone should go there and get a little bumper sticker and put it on the back windshield. 100,000 people see it. The other thing, Kim, is that every uh, Thursdays I do a town hall, shivaforpresident.com slash town hall. And what I discover is this little diagram right here. And mm -hmm. you can go there and you'll find it. And we, we're taking the six issues, healthcare, environment, education, innovation, governance, and economy. And for each one of those, Kim, I have actually have a solution when people come to the town halls, I give them here and now. It's not like after I become president. Healthcare, we teach people how to boost their immune system. On innovation, we actually teach young kids how to, the seven secrets of innovation. We're actually, economy, we actually teach people what is a profit and loss statement? What is a balance sheet? How to save money? So our view is that we don't have to, the, the presidency is corrupt, the legislature is corrupt, the judiciary is corrupt. What would I do as president? I would continue to have, you know, I would do conversations like this. Use that megaphone 
to unleash people doing bottoms up movement. So shivaforpresident.com, shivaforpresident.com slash town hall. Yeah, number four. President with the number four. four. And then finally, I've created a set of educational tools at truthfreedomhealth.com where I want people to have the same knowledge that a Henry Kissinger has that got at Harvard or George Soros has with this science of systems. It's like Prometheus bringing fire to the earth. With this knowledge, people can really awaken how, how to solve problems. So truthfreedomhealth.com, shivaforpresident.com, again, numeral four. Okay. Dr. Shiva, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for all your great work. Thank you. Be well. Well, guys, that is it for tonight's show. Thank you so much for joining. That was a long conversation. That was a long one, but it was a good one. And again, if you want to watch more of Dr. Shiva, he's got a lot of information then you can go to his website, Shiva for the number four president.com. You can also follow him on YouTube. He's got a lot of information there. So thank you guys so much for joining. Really appreciate you being here tonight. We will be back Monday night, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Until then, guys, have a great one. Bye-bye.